The title of its class, as I mentioned last time, from Slichat Avodah, an introduction to the liturgical poetry of Elo and the Minoraim. And today we're doing part two on Rosh Hashanah. So just by way of review for those who were here last week and also those who might not have been here last week and haven't listened in to the recording, which is available online. Um, we spoke, um, in this class we're speaking about the three main forms of liturgical poetry that we encounter in Elo and during the high holidays, right? So last week we discussed the Slichot. Uh, we also gave an overview of Piyut in general. Just two words on that, piyut uh, is a Greek word which came into Hebrew to signify Hebrew liturgical poetry and also to an extent Aramaic liturgical poetry. Um, it began as a genre in the post-Talmudic period more or less in the land of Israel in the fifth century or so and then it really took off and became extremely popular and really every kind of um, practice of Judaism worldwide. Although it did take some time for it to pick up in Babylonia and in the rites that kind of are the descendants of the rite of Babylonia. Um, although, as we saw last week, it did become quite popular there, and actually some of the most popular genres that we know of, named the Slichot, originated in Babylonia, and those who were here in the class on Shavuot, the Azorot, also began in Babylonia. Um, so that was what brought us to talking about the Slichot, which we saw um, our form of liturgical poetry that might have originated as part of the Amidah, but also eventually kind of stood outside of the Amidah uh, in the nighttime, the early morning. Um, on all kinds of occasions, and there's great diversity in it, although we are most associating it with now, um, with Elo, and that is actually a practice which goes back several hundred years. So today we'll talk about the PUT and other prayers of Rosh Hashanah, and next week we'll talk about Yom Kippur. And I should say that um, this class today won't focus on one specific genre in the same way that the last class focused specifically on the genre um, of the Slicha, and next week we will exclusively really just talk about the Seder Avodah. But rather, um, there aren't the same kind of epic forms or very extensive kind of robust forms of Piyut Rosh Hashanah, but there are a lot of other very interesting things that we do see in Rosh Hashanah, some of which are, are Piyut teams. So we'll, this class will be a little more kind of focused on, on various different elements of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah. So first we'll begin with a brief overview of the prayers. Then we'll look at a close, I'll have to take a closer look at Shacharit and a closer look at Musaf. And as time permitting, I'll have some additional tidbits of interesting things that kind of happen in, the, in these prayers. So first of all, an overview of Rosh Hashanah prayers uh, and their history. And I should begin by saying that basically everything, a lot of what I say and a lot of what basically can be said uh, on the prayers of the holidays in general in the Ashkenazi rite in particular, uh, we can say now thanks to the work of this scholar, Daniel Goldschmidt. Uh, he was a fascinating, fascinating scholar who um, began as a librarian uh, in Germany, he actually was able to work for the German government uh, until he no longer could in the 30s and he moved to Israel and immediately took up a job at the National Library. And in his retirement, <laughs> he began to create what we call a critical edition. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment, what that means, um, of the Ashkenazi rite, and particularly uh, of the of the Pew team of the liturgical poetry that appeared in the Ashkenazi rite. And the first one that he published was the Machzor de Mim these two very, 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 very big volumes of all the Piyutim and all the prayers uh, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, he started on other holidays as well, although did not finish them before he passed away. Uh, and then his son-in-law, Yonah Frankel, who's known probably primarily as a scholar of Midrash and Agadah, completed them. And now his grandson, Avram Frankel, is kind of, Avram Frankel is continuing the project. So it began as this kind of one man's work and <laughs> his in his retirement and it became a whole project which has totally changed the face of scholarship and has been continued by his descendants. Um, I should say though that he did have a hand in liturgy beforehand. He's also, he had already published beforehand an edition of the Haggadah, of the Haggadah for Pesach. So what does it mean that it's a critical edition? 
What this means is that um, he looked through hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of manuscripts uh, and did all he could to try and figure out what the practice was in the different Ashkenazi and French communities um, and what the Pew team should have looked like in all those, had looked like at different points in time and then comment on them as well. And throughout the class today, we'll bring a few examples um, from the Mach source so we'll get a better sense of, of what goes on there. I should say it's, it's pretty hard to get a, a print edition of it. They're kind of no longer in print, that Koran doesn't print them anymore, um, but you could get it online for free at hebrewbooks.org. If you have any questions on this, you wanna follow up on it, um, you could just, um, Google that or go to Hebrew books and search for Machzol and you'll be able to find um, his commentary on all of these different few team. Um, so now that we have that tool in hand, let's look at an overview of the kind of the structure of the, of the service. So we have Mariv, um, and as we mentioned last week, there are different few team liturgical poetry, poems that can be written um, for such occasions uh, to be recited during Mariv. And these are, again, liturgical poems that first came to replace the blessings that surrounded the Kriyachma and then kind of um, were added on top of the blessings. And these were written starting really with the Kalir, we'll talk about it in a moment, starting in the seventh century or so. And it was a genre that continued to be written in for several hundred more years in Europe and elsewhere. Um, although now it is, it is basically unheard of uh, for anyone to use these poems in liturgical service in a synagogue. There are some in the Italian rite and elsewhere, but for the most part, uh, we no longer use this. Um, I guess there's some kind of understanding that people want to finish synagogue quickly at night. Um, but also just because in general, as, as we discussed last week, um, Piyut is used less and less in services um, as the years go on and especially following the Holocaust. So in the morning, uh, we spoke last week about kind of the main genres uh, of poetry, of, of, of poetry of Piyut in the morning. And the first is the Yotzrot, which like the Ma'arivim, uh, liturgical poems that are written to adorn the blessings on the Kriyashma. And then we have the Kedush Ta'ot. Um, and these are the poems that adorn the first several blessings of the Amidah leading up to the recitation of the Kedusha, which again, as mentioned in antiquity was only recited um, on sh in Shacharit on holidays and was not recited elsewhere in the land of Israel um, other than on holidays and especially during Shacharit. Whereas in the afternoon in Musaf or later in the morning, they usually did not actually recite Kedusha. Um, although Rosh Hashanah is a little bit different, we'll get to that in a moment. And then we have the Torah service, so Genesis 21, followed by the Aftorah of 1 Samuel on the first day, Genesis 22, followed by Jeremiah 31 on the second day. And those are actually pretty agreed upon in ancient kind of uh, liturgical forms or lectionary forms. Uh, then the initial, initial shofar blast, it's Kiyotim Yushav, because technically speaking, one can sit while listening to them. And then the Musaf, and something which is somewhat unique for Rosh Hashanah, we actually have a Kedushta. The recitation of the Kedusha was done already in the land of Israel in antiquity, and therefore there's specific kind of poems that adorn such a setting, uh, with a specific kind of genre uh, for Rosh Hashanah called the Tkiyatot, um, which you know are the blessings over the Malchiot, Zichonot, and Shofrot, and we'll talk in a moment about what the content of that is and also how antique uh, this practice actually was. Um, so I mentioned already Rabbi Azar, Rabbi Khalil. Um, and this is a figure who is rather well known in the history of liturgical poetry or Hebrew poetry in general, uh, really because he wrote a huge amount. Uh, he had a big influence on Hebrew poetry in general. And I think without a doubt, in my opinion, also I think kind of it's relatively agreed upon, can be considered to be one of the greatest Hebrew poets of all time. Um, and specifically in the rite we'll be talking about today in the Ashkenazi rite, it's very important that we mention, we give him pride of place because the rite gives him pride of place. I mean most of the poetry that we still recite in the context of the Ashkenazi Siddur, the Mahzor, 
our poem is written by Elazar Burabi Khalil. So the first name Elazar is pretty clear. Uh, the last name or his father's name that is Khalil is not so clear. Um, it seems like it's a Greek name, Cyril, uh, Kirilos. Um, the Rebbe is kind of the way of saying son of rabbi, um, but people don't, and, and in the Middle Ages, people knew of him, but did not really know what that meant and kind of made up various myths about maybe he had eaten some kind of cake uh, that would give him the ability to create such poetry. Um, and let's just say a few things about the Kalir, since we'll be looking at a bunch of his poems today. So we know that he lived in the Galilee. Um, this can be seen from various kinds of references and also kind of just makes sense given uh, what we know of Jewish life in the time that he lived. We know that he flourished in the late sixth century and the first decades of the seventh century. Uh, and this we know because in the majority of the poems, whenever he talks about the rulers who are ruling the Jews, he talks about Christian rulers. And then kind of in some of his poems, he talks about Arab or Islamic rulers. Um, so we can tell that, you know, he probably lived through the Arab, the Persian and then Arab conquest of the first decades of the seventh century, which he would have seen in Galilee. Um, questionable how much of an impact it would have had in his own life, given the rural setting in which he lived, or even that Tiberius wasn't exactly the, the central city if he lived in its vicinity. Um, but that gives us kind of a time and place. Um, we know that he composed many, many piyutim, primarily for holidays and special Sabbaths. Um, and different, different paitanim, as we say, authored compositions for different days, and he primarily did it for these occasions. Um, much of his work survived um, because it remained and also remains, as I mentioned, in use in some European rites. So let's just think about that for a moment. Um, at some point, um, as of now in the slides, we don't know exactly when, a lot of his compositions were brought to Europe. Um, they were so well loved that they continued to be used for generations and generations until you know they, brought, they were brought to Europe and continued to be used there. Um, eventually we start finding them in medieval Mahzorium from Europe, most of, most of which date hundreds of years after the seventh century. I mean, they all date the hundreds of years of the seventh century, which again, just tells you like how popular he was. And also, you know, what that means about this Jewish geography, as we say, that the compositions were created in the land of Israel, but were brought to Europe and remained popular there. Um, but it should also be said that although they were very popular, his aesthetic was not always so well loved. Um, and there were parts of Europe, uh, particularly kind of areas that had been under Islamic rule for some time in which his aesthetic was not particularly uh, well loved. Um, and also a lot of early modern Hebrew writers kind of looked down at his style for being perhaps overly arcane and as if he was trying too hard kind of to make his poetry difficult um, and, and hard to understand. And we'll see in a moment how difficult some of his poetry was. Um, but with that, we also have many works of his that survive in copies from the Cairo Geniza. So we have there copies of works that we know of from Europe. But interestingly, we also discovered new works of his. And we'll see in a moment, I'll see later on in the class, uh, one specific composition of his, which we know of only from the Cairo Geniza. The Cairo Geniza, again, is this kind of cache of, of Hebrew manuscripts that were rediscovered at the end of the 19th century in a synagogue in uh, Cairo or in medieval Shustat, which were saved because they had been discarded. Um, and so what some scholars think is that the reason why some might have only made it to the Cairo Geniza and do not survive in Europe is because these are perhaps poems that were written following the Islamic conquest. And at that point, kind of the connection between the land of Israel and Europe or Southern Europe had been somewhat severed, whereas the connection with Egypt had not been severed given that they were all part of the Islamic Mediterranean. So there's some interesting things to say historically about his corpus, but we'll be focusing mainly on the liturgical aspects. Luckily, um, around four or five years ago, actually even more, uh, a teacher of mine, Shemite Litzul, along, along with another student of hers, Michael Rand, um, published all of his known compositions for Rosh Hashanah, 
This is the first volume and will hopefully be a complete series of all of his compositions, many of which still have not appeared in print and we only know them from manuscripts. So we'll look at that also a little bit today. So um, some central themes and motifs in all these poems. The first is that God answers prayers. Um, the examples are brought from the Bible and one of the things that is particularly kind of given a lot of emphasis um, is that he answered Sarah and Hannah's prayers. Um, and we can go into that perhaps another point, but there's a lot to be said there about how um, that is kind of the model in Jewish liturgy in general, and especially also in the P.O.T. and Rosh Hashanah for the answering of prayer is the answer of the prayer of a woman who would like to have a child, like to bear a child and turns to God for that um, and is then answered. Another central theme, uh, the binding of Isaac. And so right in these two stories, uh, answering of Sarah and the binding of Isaac are also the Torah reading portions um, that God is king. <laughs> The creation of the world and the shofarot, which also relate to God as king, as is the creation of the world, and also to some kind of messianic time in the future. Um, so, given that these are the themes, and given that these themes were mainly kind of uh, meditated on or written about um, by these liturgical poets who wrote the first pew team for Rosh Hashanah in the land of Israel in the fifth, sixth, seventh centuries, I think it's interesting if we just do a very quick sidebar to see how actually. These are themes which are very, very prevalent in ancient synagogue art, really in the synagogues that we discovered over the past century or so in the land of Israel, in which perhaps some of these liturgical poets actually operated, uh, which is quite interesting. So these are synagogues from the Galilee, all of which kind of date to the Byzantine period, so fifth, sixth, seventh centuries, um, in which you know it is possible that some of these uh, liturgical poets actually operated. And this is some of the art that appears in the mosaic floors. Right, so we see in the synagogue in Beit Alpha, it's kind of actually something of a backwater in antiquity and also today uh, here in Southern Galilee. Um, this is a rather famous uh, mosaic depiction of the binding of Isaac. It even says it's Chak Avraham, Abatishlach, and Hinaya Ayel, different kind of um, narrations of the biblical account um, of the binding of Isaac, which is featured very, very prominently on the mosaic floor. This is a synagogue that was built in the sixth century. Um, and Sepphoris, this is a synagogue that actually was in a relatively central city, although it had already kind of declined as a center of Jewish life and was more kind of ruled for the most part by Christians. Also from around the same time, we see again the same depiction uh, or similar depiction of the Binding of Isaac. And one thing actually that's interesting is that Zev Weiss, who published the mosaic floor of the synagogue, has argued that actually the, the panel right here below the Binding of Isaac was most likely originally a depiction of Sarah getting word that she will bear a child. Um, so if he is correct, and we see that again, two of the essential themes um, of, this, of the Rosh Hashanah prayers that the liturgical poets of the Byzantine period in Palestine spoke about on Rosh Hashanah are also depicted on these floors. Um, Shofar is depicted in a lot of them as well, um, very, very centrally right under the Torah arc. Uh, and then lastly, I don't wanna get too into this, but the Zodiac in the center of a lot of these synagogues, which is something which was, came as a very big surprise to scholars of, of Judaism when they discovered that a lot of these synagogues had the zodiac depiction. And even more so given that some of them had this depiction of Helios, um, of some kind of sun god figure in their center. Um, this obviously scandalized a lot of scholars of Jewish uh, antiquity. Um, but I think regardless of how we interpret it, I do think that some of the people who would be in synagogue might've actually imagined you know, a king, a heavenly king, God, to look something like that or it might have influenced kind of their understanding of what God looked like. So again, a lot of these themes, um, which we see, or as I already mentioned, are discussed in the Pew team also appear in the artwork. So going back to the prayers themselves, um, we'll begin with Shacharit. 
given that uh, Ma'ariv is no longer really something which um, is so adorned in contemporary prayer uh, with Piyutim, I decided that we could skip over it for now. And kind of the goal of the next, next few slides, I'm not gonna go through everything. It, it'll take days uh, to go through all these Piyutim in detail. And we have a whole day to do that next week, um, or two days rather. But I do wanna give us just a little bit of like an orientation about what some of these Piyutim are how we can understand them, how we could begin to understand them, and how kind of just the structure of, of the prayers work. So on the first day, um, the Kedushta, like the composition that is recited, uh, is one by the Kaliri. Uh, and the next day, it's, it's one by Yikutiel Bamosheh, an 11th century Paitan from Ashkenaz, who we're not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about his Kedushta. Um, so as you can see here, I divided it into, into 10 parts. And what's important to understand actually is that there are actually, a Kedushta is a composition composed of all kinds of other PU team or specific PU team that make it up. Um, so the first one uh, adorns the first blessing, the you know, then Mechaim team, And then we start having a lot, a lot, a lot of PU team, um, which adorn the third blessing leading up to the Kedushta. The Kedusha itself. Um, this here is just another reconstruction of a synagogue. I'm not saying that Azarbabi Kalir prayed there, but it is a reconstruction of the synagogue in Kfar Nahum, which might have operated around the time uh, that he was himself con composing liturgical poetry in, in the galley. Um, so some of these you might be more familiar with. Some of them are no longer recited. Melech Hayon is obviously still recited today, uh, one of the most popular PU team, um, and we'll get back to it. Um, and one other thing I want to mention just by looking at this entire kind of structure from the macro uh, is an argument, again, quoting from my teacher, Shemit Elitzol, that the way the Kedushta as this extensive, extensive composition, and again, it could take, you know, it could take several weeks to just go through all of the Kedushta to understand every single word and line of it, um, which he has argued, and this is something which is particularly true in the case of the Kaliri's Kedushtot, uh, is that it goes progressively from more difficult to less difficult. Right, so the opening uh, stanzas of the opening pew to the first kind of composition here are very difficult to understand um, and perhaps might have been decipherable by the folks who are the most educated people in the synagogue audience or in the synagogue community. Um, it will be difficult in that the Hebrew itself is difficult and you know this is probably not the language that the folks um, were speaking day to day, they're probably speaking Aramaic or Greek, um, but also it is dense in its references to midrashic motifs uh, that we now know of also from rabbinic literature. And in order to understand some of it, you actually really need to know rabbinic literature, or you need to know these midrashic motifs that appear now in rabbinic literature. You have to be quite educated in Jewish lore. Um, but as it progresses, it becomes easier to understand. And even if someone didn't understand the beginning of it, they might actually you know, have appreciated the aesthetic beauty of it or the way that it sounded to them. Um, and not only does it get more explicit as it goes on, the Kaliri and some other Paitanim who copied his style uh, kind of returns to some specific themes, um, which were mentioned in the beginning of it, the more difficult part, and is kind of explaining himself as he goes on. So there's also this pedagogical kind of element to the structure of the Kedushta. And so given what that means, uh, that it goes from more difficult to less difficult, uh, when the time you get to the Siluk, uh, and we'll come back to this, remember this for now, the Siluk is the final kind of section of the Kedushta, and it, Siluk means it's going up, it's ending right before uh, the recitation of the, of the Kedusha, um, that is actually really the easiest, most direct kind of part, um, most easiest to understand um, aspect of the Kedusha or element of the Kedusha. 
um, leading up to the Pew team that adorned the Kedusha itself, which we don't really do that much anymore, uh, which are also quite easy to understand and, and quite ecstatic. Okay. Um, but something which you'll today, it doesn't start with Atchil Yom Kuda, it starts actually with uh, Rishuyot. We'll get back to Rishuyot next week, so also worth remembering this. But Rishiot are Piyutim that were appended to the beginning of the compositions, not just of Kedushtot, but Piyutim in general, um, in which the Paitan asks permission. He asks Rishut. So I'll read this one. This is a very early one, which appears all over the place, um, but we don't know who, who authored it. And it says, Misod Chachamim Nuhonim, right from the foundation or the secret, depending on how to translate it, of um, the sages, the wise ones, and from the instruction uh, of those who understand. I will open my mouth in prayer and in entreaties. Right to entreat and to beg before um, the presence of the king of kings and the lord of lords. So one of the questions here is, first of all, why does the Paitan need to do this or the Chazan who was then performing it in Sangang need to do this? And the question is really, what, from who is he, or what is he asking permission about? Um, so in this very kind of, this is the most embryonic kind of form um, of the Rashut, it can be interpreted in two ways. Uh, it could be interpreted as permission, first of all, just to kind of, you know, be the Shaliyah Tibo, right? To, to represent the community um, as he is praying on their behalf. Or it could also be understood as the Paitan or the Chazan um, asking permission specifically to actually recite Piyut, right? To recite liturgical poetry and, and to break from standard fixed liturgy, um, right? Because we already kind of noted a few times that there is this, this tension always between the desire to perform something like, litur like Hebrew liturgical poetry like Piyut, but understanding also that it is somewhat problematic, perhaps halakhically speaking. So here it's saying, I am asking permission either or and and or to represent the community and or to depart from the standardized liturgy and to perform pute. Um, and then second to that kind of is the question of what does it mean, is this from the foundation or from the secret for whatever, um, the permission of the the sages who are in the audience um, or as in who perhaps appointed him as an emissary for the community or an alternative explanation. Um, and I don't think this necessarily have to be contradictory perhaps like we read together is that it is acknowledging that recitation of poetry, liturgical poetry is okay, because in the end of the day, it all goes back to rabbinic knowledge, right? The poetry itself is founded upon founded upon uh, the knowledge that has been imparted to us by the sages, the wise ones. Those are the two understandings. Uh, this is the earliest, as mentioned, Rishut that we have. But later on, for example, in this one, which was written by our friend Yikuti Alban Moshe, uh, which is the one that is recited in most Ashkenazi communities today, um, what is played up a lot more actually is the belief that, or the understanding that, you know, it is the, now incumbent upon the Chazan reciting Piyut to ask permission kind of of God and of the community uh, to be a, a proper emissary on, the, on behalf of the community. Interestingly, as mentioned, this is added on to the Kaliri's composition. The Kaliri himself did write some Rishriyot, but it was a genre that actually took took form and really kind of uh, began to be more popular following his time. And next week we'll see one from a Paitan living in the eighth century, and we'll look at it in more detail. But yeah, this is Yeredi Bifzotis Yachlashkil. You know, I was scared almost uh, to open my mouth in prayer. 
Um, so that's kind of the main kind of emphasis here is that the Paitan is, does not feel that he is worthy, the Chazan does not feel that he is worthy um, as a representative, but he does not necessarily seem to find any problem with reciting Piyut itself. So how does the, how does the Kaliri's uh, composition begin? Atchil yom pekuda be'emav kol lechum lesokeda. Absolutely impossible to understand Hebrew poetry. Uh, I'll explain it in a moment. But I just want to give you a sense. Visually, you can see this is Goldschmidt's commentary on, what is it, five, six, seven, eight lines. This is Shulamit Elitzolo's commentary, uh, right? So six lines, you know, you get this many. This is the kind of ratio of commentary to lines. This gives you kind of a sense of the density, right? So you can see um, at actually is originally an Aramaic word, came, which was uh, already kind of normalized into Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible itself, and therefore it is Hebrew enough for the for Kaliri to use it, um, right? So the day of the decision-making kind of has come, that is Rosh Hashanah. What does he say here? Um, yeah. Sorry. Because within his fear, within the fear of it, every lachum is a way of saying like basar or um, what's the word? person, so to speak, um, is fearful of it, right? Because of what could happen to them. So it gives you kind of a sense of, first of all, how difficult it is and surprising actually that it was so popular given how difficult it is. Um, and also kind of, that is the main theme of this and that's how it opens composition of, the day has come, we are all scared. We are coming forth, you know, bending our knees um, because of how scared we are of the severity of the day. One second, so I see a comment here. Can you make it a little bigger for the middle-aged eyes? Ooh, uh, I will, other ones will be a little bigger. <laughs> I'm not gonna look at this one in too much detail because I just wanted to kind of explain the structure of the of the pute itself um, and also kind of give you a sense of the Kaliri's aesthetic, which is, again, you could see, I think it's easier to see how it's surprising uh, that this would be continued, um, but is also, was extremely popular, and this is a piyut that we have in hundreds, hundreds of copies, both from the Geniza and from Europe. Um, and then we get to something which is actually a little more understandable uh, why the Kaliri, why it became so popular, and it's a little more direct, right? So later on, I mentioned one of the piyutim that appears um, for the third blessing is Melech Elyon, right? So this is, again, the central kind of theme, uh, one of the central themes that we already flagged at the beginning of the class on Rosh Hashanah piyutim, and that is, you know, God's kingship. Um, and it is, the original composition was extremely long. There's actually a question um, for which of the Kaliri's Kedush to Oti originally wrote this, um, because usually what happens in Piyut is a Paitan will write a specific Piyut, he'll write a specific poem for a specific composition of poems, a specific Kedushta or a specific Shivata, uh, whereas this one appears actually in numerous settings in the Kalirian corpus, for Rosh Hashanah. Um, originally it was very, very, very long. Uh, and what we do nowadays is we usually actually condense it in different ways, uh, one, which, one way we'll see in a moment. And it's hard to know where he originally wrote it from. It's perhaps possible even that he, he did write it uh, and it was so popular that he thought, you know, this is a great poem. I'm gonna insert it into multiple of my compositions. Although that might've meant that, you know, in some communities they, and we still do kind of perhaps recite it more than once over the holiday. Um, okay. So very direct, we're already kind of later on in Kedushta, 
And you can tell that the style is easier. Melech Hayon, you know, Lord on high, King on high. Kel Darba Marom, you know, the Lord who lives up high. Abib Marom, he is great out high. Omet Siodot Tarom, right? The greatness of his hand shall come forth. La De Adim Loch, he will reign forever. And that's the refrain, La De Adim Loch. It seems perhaps that already in this time in the seventh century when he wrote this, that he kind of would create a refrain that would be easy for folks to to remember quite immediately. And then the congregation itself could participate um, in the recitation of the piyut. With that, there are some compositions of his, and we know this also from the contemporary Mahsor, that every refrains are a bit longer. And scholars have actually argued that perhaps uh, the Khalir thought of there being a chorus, uh, a, a, you know, some kind of choral accompaniment to his compositions in antiquity. Uh, we see some of that in perhaps just a little bit of the, of the piyut team that were written prior to his time, but really it's the Khaliri who picked up as a practice this idea uh, of there being um, a, you know, kind of some kind of choral accompaniment to the chazan, um, which is interesting also for what it means about you know, the professionalization of a synagogue uh, liturgy. Also perhaps some scholars have argued that this might've been kind of an influence of what, of what was going on in the churches just down the street uh, in the cities in Galilee, um, some similar kind of Byzantine aesthetic and liturgical mode. But you know, you can continue on, you know, as you can see, King on high, Melech Leon Tov Shochen Ad, right? The goodness who resides forever. Tuvolad, his goodness is forever. Tipach Shme Ad, you know, he will rule heavens forever. Ladeadim Loch, this idea that God will be king forever. Um, but what I skipped over are the lines in between. Melech Evion, Balev, Rad Shachat, Bishulavutachat, Biliud, Blinachat. But the king of the poor king, um, right, he shall kind of fall apart um, and go to hell, um, and he will go down without any kind of um, comfort. Um, and it says, and the question is, and how long? The refrain is, how long shall he reign, right? So perhaps this is some kind of reference to the contemporary Byzantine ruler, whoever that might have been. Um, but as Goldschmidt says here, right? uh, for the most part, these are skipped over. Nowadays, there's kind of this, you know, patent, as we say in Hebrew, in which some of those verses are, are scrunched together and recited with the R closed. Um, but the reason that they were actually canceled out or omitted um, in medieval machsorim and medieval rites and then kind of into modern times, is not because of the difficulty in opening and closing the arc, but rather because of censor. Because it was, you know, a lot of liturgical poetry uh, had gone through censorship, particularly things like that, um, which, rightfully in this case, but also perhaps incorrect in other cases, be considered to be disparaging of, of, non, of you know, the non-Jewish rulers who would have been sensitive to these things. Um, and we'll see more explicit cases of that later on uh, with other aspects of the Rosh Hashanah prayers. Um, and I should say that censorship is something which occurred in the Middle Ages. You see that in manuscripts and of course picked up a lot more severely uh, following the Reformation and kind of as part of the Counter-Reformation which came coincided with you know, the print revolution, the first print revolution. Um, in which case there was a lot more monitoring of, of, the, of the Hebrew books. But again, already in the Middle Ages, prior to all that, there also were censors. And we'll talk in a moment about other examples of censorship in the Rosh Hashanah prayers. Um, okay, so we saw some of the main, uh, I think, compositions of Shacharit. We can go into a lot more detail. As mentioned, it is, there's a lot to be spread at every one of these lines, but I want to give you a sense of the overall structure, the overall things of kingship and such. Um, other themes, which I mentioned in the start of, of, the, of the class, which are very important uh, to Rosh Hashanah, 
so th some of them are specifically important for the Shacharit prayers, uh, right? So the things that have to do with the biblical election, right? The reading um, from Genesis and specifically also from Samuel more so uh, about the prayers of the matriarchs being answered uh, and the binding of Isaac are to an extent kind of emphasized more in Shacharit because it leads up to the Torah service, whereas in Musaf, they don't kind of come up quite as much. So Musaf. This is actually something which is discussed quite at length um, in rabbinic literature itself, um, in, in Rosh Hashanah, in the Mishnah, and the Tosefta. Said the brachot, right? What are the orders of the brachot? Omer avot v'gvurot k'dushat Hashem, right? The normal kind of first three uh, blessings. V'kolayad malchiot imahen ve'enotokia, and it includes malchiot in that, and there's no there's no blowing of the shofar. K'dushat hayom v'tokia, k'dushat hayom one does uh, blow the shofar. Zichonot v'tokea, shofarot v'tokea, and then two additional blessings on top of that of zichonot and shofarot. And then it says, v'omer avodah v'hoda'ah v'rkat konim, and recite kind of the normal uh, anti-penultimate and penultimate blessings d'amidah, without mentioning sim shalom, which actually probably had not been instituted yet at this point in the Tanitic period. Diver Rabbi Yochanan ben Noe. These are the words of Yochanan ben Noe. Amal Rabbi Akiva, im eno tokea l'malchiyot, l'amu hu mazkir, right? But if if one does not uh, blow the shofar in Malchiyot, which according to Yochanan Benuri uh, would be included in this blessing of Ketushat Hashem, why is it mentioned at all? Ela omer avot v'gvorot v'ketushat Hashem. Rather, one is to recite avot v'gvorot v'ketushat Hashem, the first three blessings normally. V'kolel Malchiyot v'ketushat Hashem v'tokeah, zichronot v'tokeah, shofarot v'tokeah, and then includes Malchiyot in Ketushat Hashem and blows the shofar, zichronot its own blessing um, with shofar blowing, and then shofar wrote its own blessing with shofar blowing, and then it has the final two blessings and Birkat Um, So we see here kind of two ways to structure the Musaf Amida. Um, no matter what, Malchiot will be incorporated in a pre existing blessing. According to Yochanan Benuri, it's the blessing of Kdushat Hashem. Um, and then on top of that, um, we have the blessing for the holiday, and then a separate blessing for Zichonot and Shofarot. Whereas according to Rabbi Akiva, Malchiot uh, um, is incorporated not in Kedushat Hashem, but in Kedushat uh, in, in the blessing that is normally the middle blessing on the holiday, followed then by two additional blessings. Um, so we'll get back to that argument in a moment, but for the most part right nowadays, we actually, actually entirely uh, really perform it according to Rabbi Akiva's opinion. Although there might be some remnant, as we'll see in a moment, of Yochanan ben Uri's opinion. Um, and then on top of that, I'll just say this kind of out loud without looking at it inside, um, right? Um, you have to have 10 verses um, on the theme of the blessing for each of the blessing, which is also the kind of practice nowadays. Um, so we see, this is actually kind of rare. It doesn't happen that often that the Tanitic sources talk in this detail about the structure of the Amidah or really the content of Jewish blessings. But here we have one of the most extreme examples, most explicit examples of that. We don't have time, so I won't read it out loud, but actually the Tosefta records an argument between Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel, which kind of would then, about these blessings, which would then kind of bring us back to, you know, really as if these blessings were already being performed and recited on the holidays in the time of the Second Temple itself. But we don't have time for that, so I'm going to go now into this insertion into the Amidah, which we're familiar with from the High Holidays, um, which might actually be a remnant of the practice um, that was promoted by Yochanan ben Uri. This is the, the paragraph of Wuchen Ten Pachtacha, right? 
ובכן תנתח לך השם אלוקינו על כל מעשיך ואימתך על כל מה שבולעת, right? And so grant that your all, Lord, O God, be upon all your works, right? This comes right after the opening line, the usual opening line of the blessing. And it continues until we get to this kind of uh, subsection here. And you will rule over all, essentially, God. Um, so actually, some scholars have suggested that this might actually be the, suggest this, the a remnant of Yochanan ben Nuri's practice of including Malchiot in the blessing of Kedushat Hashem, not Kedushat Hayom, um, which was then kind of inserted into liturgy and, and kept alive in that way. Um, although it was then used alongside also the practice that was promoted by Rabbi Akiva of having Malchiot in Kedushat Hayom, not in Kedushat Hashem. Um, if that is true, that's very interesting within itself, that the liturgy kind of found a way to make do with more than one practice. And it's something actually which we'll see just in a moment that is actually really a general kind of mechanism by which liturgy um, is structured and kind of grows over time. And that is that in the place of differing opinions or differing practices, the Siddur and the Mahsur kind of finds a way to just combine it, uh, to use you know, different things on different occasions. Um, therefore we should say both of them, or these are, therefore we should say all of them. Those are the kind of the mechanism that as it is referred to in the Talmuds. Um, and on that specific note, what is interesting here is the second to last line, and there's this additional kind of lead in to the ending of the blessing, which ends again, kind of something which is specific to the uh, high holidays and the 10 days of repentance, uh, which might also kind of be something, a blessing that was used in different times, which was decided, well, we're not gonna get rid of it. We'll just specifically use it at this time of the year. But so, so, so too also this line, Kadosh Atav Shemecha, we actually know that um, from the Cairo Geniza as being the way that the blessing of Kedushat Hashem was used in the, pal- was recited in the Palestinian rite. Kadosh Atav Shemecha, Hashem Kadosh. So the thinking is that instead of getting rid of this line entirely, it's a great line, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it for the specific use um, on the high holidays in this blessing. And actually we see, um, so there it is right there. You can see kind of, I highlighted it for you. And actually you see this in all kinds of uh, places in the high holiday prayers. We see this to a certain extent in the blessing of Ritzay. Um, right, instead of, there's a lot to say about the blessing of Ritzay. I wrote a, a whole book on it. But the but the ending here is, She'otcha levatcha biran avod, right? This is a, a different ending of the blessing, a different chatimah than the one that is usually used, uh, which is also the one that is that is found in the in the same sitter of the uh, Palestinian, right? A little bit different, without the word but it is essentially the same khatima. I'll say this is actually just a very beautiful machsor. We'll come back to it in a moment, Parma 3006. There's these beautiful kind of actually depictions of the Chazan, machsor from early 14th century France. Um, so just one last example of that, I'll just say out loud also, there's an example of, you know, a lot of communities say, uh, is the early Palestinian ending. Instead of forgetting it entirely, they specifically kind of just use it at this special time of the year. Um, and also, um, when in a lot of Ashkenazi communities, uh, as part of the blessings before Kriyat Shema, instead of saying, have this longer version, is kind of a longer depiction, a little more poetic depiction of the angelic praise, um, which um, also kind of harkens back to an early Palestinian practice, which instead of it being forgotten entirely, was 
given a specific kind of use over the high holidays. Um, and Goldschmidt, this is again from his Machsor, says that in the Western Ashkenazic practice, this is not used. Um, not just in the Western one, also other kind of Ashkenazic practices and also in the land of Israel. Um, to an extent, this is largely because of the Goan of Vilna actually, who was against these kinds of changes. And a lot of actually the early, uh, members of the early Yishuv in the land of Israel uh, were disciples of his and such. And therefore it is for the most part the Ashkenazic practice um, of his opinion, <laughs> according to his opinion, that is in practice in the land of Israel. And that's why you might see things in your Machsor that say like, and outside the land of Israel, we use this ending, or in the land of Israel, people don't usually use that ending. It kind of goes back to that original argument. Although it also in America, to a certain extent, this is becoming less and less the practice because Rav Soloveitchik was against changing uh, these parts of Jewish prayer. But you should ask your local rabbi. <laughs> um, okay. So central kind of element of the Musaf are the Tkiyatot. Uh, and we already saw a discussion of them. Uh, this is another way of referring to the blessings of the Machiot, Zichonot, the Shofrot, these kind of three main themes, uh, two of which get their own bracha, whereas Machiot is part of Kedushat Hayom. And it seems actually like the one that we say, the one that actually appears now kind of just in the Machsorim, not as a piyut, but just kind of as a standard liturgy, is actually referenced already in the Talmud, which is a pretty amazing thing. It's very uncommon for us to find such explicit kind of citations of prayer. And when we do, it's usually in the Yerushalmi. Uh, because it just wasn't as corrupted over time by, it wasn't copied as many times as the Bible was copied. Um, and they referred to there as the Tkieta the Rav, right? The Tkietot or Dovei Rav in some manuscripts. Um, and it says there, this is the quote, Zayom Tchilat Masecha, Zikron Liyom Mishon, Kichot Yisrael Mishpat Eloke Yaakov, Val Midinot Bo Yamer, Ezel Echera Vezel Shalom, Ezel Rav Ezel Sova, Uvriot Mi Yifkodu, Lazkiram, Yifkidu, Lazkiram Nachayim Lamavet, right? This kind of specific, Phrase that actually we know from our Siddur, from our Machsar as well, which is already kind of uh, mentioned in the Yerushalmi, which is a rather amazing thing. And that's why the standard liturgy today is referred to as the Tkiyata de Rav, de Rav. And again, it's this theme of, you know, God is gloryful, what the creation of the world is, is remembered now, um, everyone is being judged, the people and the states. Um, but that is not the only one that we have. They're actually all kinds of ones uh, that appear. Um, we are familiar perhaps most with, you know, how also Aleinu is part of the Tzgiyata de Ve'rav as we refer to it. They could see her also an example of it being crossed out, right? These are the lines, um, which were originally written, but then crossed out by a censor. This again is from that same early 14th century manuscript from France, um, Parma manuscript 30067. Um, but, there, on top of the one of Dvirav or Dvirav, we also see this one, as it is referred to. Uh, it's a really beautiful manuscript, as you can see, and it's depicted here also with some kind of different, um, different colors of uh, ink and also with some kind of slight commentary on the sides. Um, and this is actually also known from the Cairo Geniza. So this is an alternative version, which is more poetic, known both in Europe and in the Geniza. You can see again here, um, and it's actually first mentioned in the Sidur of Rav Sadigon. I mentioned Rav Sadigon last week, ninth uh, century Gaon in Sura, who was kind of an amazing polymath, international traveler, who also wrote a Siddur, amongst other works, in Judeo-Arabic, uh, in which he says, he describes Rosh Hashanah prayers, and then he says that on top of that, um, there are also all different kinds of 
um, what's the word, of different kind of poems and such that were uh, authored on this occasion. Um, Tkiotot for the Tkiot, as we say, and specifically, I will bring that of Yossi ben Yose. So he then goes on after that on the following page, you can see there, he brings that exact same one, Ahalala Lokai, and he associates it with someone named Yose ben Yose. So the, as mentioned already in the past, um, some Paitanim eventually kind of signed their name in their compositions using an acrostic. In this one, we do not have an acrostic um, saying that this is authored by Yosei ben Yusei, but we have the tradition of Saad Yagon, and it also appears in all the manuscripts um, with the header saying, this is by Yosei ben Yusei. So who was Yosei ben Yusei? Um, they're all kind of, this is not Yosei ben Yusei, this is Aaron Mursky, he was a scholar of Piyut who collected all the different Piyut team uh, about which there are traditions that they are written by Yosei ben Yusei. Some people say he was an orphan because he had the name of his father, but other than that, we don't really know anything about him at all, other than that he was the earliest Paitan that he is before, earliest Paitan whom we know of by name. Um, they seemingly lived in the land of Israel, but we can't, we can't know anything really about him uh, other than what we know from his poetry, and we'll talk more about some of his poetry next week. Um, so he also wrote one, and it is recited in some communities today, Um you can tell that it was originally written to replace the Tkiyata of Rav. He was familiar with that composition. Uh, but in, in most Sidurim and Machrim, it appears, it always appears alongside it, either beforehand or afterhand. And now, onto the crowning jewel of the PU team of the High Holidays, Unutana Tokef. Um, so, off the bat, we're just looking at it as it appears here in the Machsor of Goldschmidt, right? He describes it as a Siluk, right? A Siluk, again, as mentioned. These are the compositions that were written right before the Kedushta. Again, the Kedushta is a composition that begins difficult and gets easier as it progresses, so that more and more people can understand it as the congregation kind of comes together and becomes more ecstatic, leading up to the recitation of the Kedusha itself. And as such, this is, you know, written in the most direct, kind of um, easiest to understand style. Um, I'm not passing any judgment here on Unutana Tokef, I'm just saying that by the metric of the period in which it was written, it is most certainly considered a much easier to understand, less difficult, less ornate poem. Perhaps for that reason, that's also why it is so popular, right? Because it is just, it just gets right to the gut. Um, okay, some other things just on the aesthetic level. That first line rhymes. That rhymes. The rhyme scheme starts to actually not work quite as well anymore. Um, starts to kind of fall apart. Um, it comes back and forth every now and then. Kind of rhymes. Kind of rhymes. Not quite as strict, though, as you saw in some of the Kaliri stuff. Uh, and the thinking is that Perhaps this is because it is of an earlier period. And now is the point when everyone says, what do you mean of an earlier period? We all know, this is what it said in our Mahasaurus growing up, that um, this you know, was written by an Ashkenazi sage who died uh, as a martyr, Rav Amnon, not much is known of him other than that, as recorded in the Or Zerua. Um, so yeah, <laughs> once they started discovering Pew team in the Cairo Geniza, already in the late 19th century, pretty quickly, they actually came across, came, came across copies of Munatana Tokef. Actually, many, 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 many copies. It was extremely popular. Um, such that 
they kind of realized that there's really no way this is written in Europe. Um, the story there kind of, you know, depicts something which happened after the period in which a lot of these manuscripts were written. What's going on? Who wrote this? It appears um, in a lot of the context of the Kalir's uh, Kedushtot, but it seems like he didn't write it itself. And then just very recently, we discovered a siluk of the Kalir. We discovered his own composition for this part of the prayer, which actually seems to be rewriting Unatana Tokef. It says, right? The book of memory should be open. Everything that was forgotten shall be remembered. Right, he, the, it will be read out, read out loud, and um, the signature of each pan, each person is in it. And the Kaliri writes, "Kibos nifosim," and that day the books are open. and everything that was hidden is opened up. shamit and everything, um, that other word for hidden, um, is there, kind of revealed. The Sefer Gehosim will be opened, and from upon it, um, everything that was done shall be read. Um, no one is hidden. Everyone is mentioned, the good, the bad, the big, and the small. Uh, and, and because what each person did, it shall be done. And the signature he shall place alongside each. Right, so we see that he is actually very much reworking this Matan Tokef Siluk. It's a little more clear here. Um, right? Um, this uh, will not go on. This one will not continue because it will reach his end. And um, this one, because on account of his sin, will also die. Um, so given that it seems that the Kaliri is actually very much working with Unatana Tokef, scholars now have um, begun to the conclusion that was written at some point actually before the seventh century. Um, it was already very popular then to the point that the Kaliri himself had to create a composition uh, that was based on it. The thinking is that it was actually might've been Yanai who was kind of the, the main kind of Python who operated before him. Uh, we have four minutes. I wanna look at then two very quick tidbits because I like them a lot. The Kaliri references all kinds of interesting things in his PU team for the holiday. Um, one thing that comes up actually is this phrase, this is a composition that should be recited actually. He wrote it for Rishana that falls on a Shabbos. And he says, they are, fearful to, they are fear, fearful to recite it today according to the law, scripture on Mishnah, Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah. So it actually seems like it's, he's referencing here the practice of reciting the Mishnah of the holiday on the holiday itself, which is a practice that if you open up your Koran, Sachs, Machsor, you'll see the Mishnah is printed there to be recited at some point. Uh, according to the Kaliri, that was already the practice in the seventh century in the land of Israel. This is a piyut by the Kaliri's great-great-grandson, actually, which was discovered in the 80s. Um, in which actually it describes the blowing of the shofar on Shabbos. Um, Most importantly here is this line here. That the king actually said that they should recite, they should blow the shofar in the in the yeshiva in the Beit Avad, um, only in the yeshiva, I guess, um, in the Shabbat when Shabbat falls and when Rosh Hashanah falls in Shabbat. Um, and there's actually one other little tidbit there, which is really, really fascinating, which is confounded scholars. Melech and the king who has also taught us, that the shofar in such instances should be tied to the bima, right? Lest one carry it, it should be tied to the bima in the yeshiva. 
so that it could be blown on Rosh Hashanah that falls on Shabbos. And these are just two of the more fascinating things, in my opinion, but there's a lot of other things out there uh, in the PUT of Rosh Hashanah, which kind of reflect the practice of the Jews in antiquity and under the Middle Ages. So um, again, today we looked at various kind of aspects of Rosh Hashanah prayers. Um, there are some main genres, like the Tkiyata, which we looked at a little bit, um, but it's very different than the Stichot or the Seder Avodaf Yom Kippur in that uh, there isn't the same kind of specific epic poem uh, or that we recite on a holiday. Um, but with that, you know, we saw that there's some central themes, God's greatness, his kingship, the creation, answering of prayers and such, and the shofars that are addressed um, in the compositions that were written for Rosh Hashanah, uh, a lot of which really go back to the seventh century in the land of Israel uh, and were written by Elizabeth Burabi Khalil. Great. So I'm going to stop the share. We have just a few minutes now for questions, if anyone wants to tap it, type it in the chat. So next week will be structured quite differently um, in that we will really probably, uh, probably try and read, really focus on the Seder Avodah. So we'll look really at maybe one composition, I think in more close detail. Um, is there a way to send thing, anything out before and if anyone wants to look at something? Yes, that, yes. Okay. If you send us something, we will, we will do our absolute okay. best and we're okay, really sure. pretty good about it. Okay, sure. So I'll try and send it out like very soon. So if, if anyone wants to look at it over the holiday, maybe that way we could kind of get through some more text. Okay, wonderful. So thank you, Mr. Lannis, for an excellent class and for everyone else for being here, being part of Drisha's learning community. Uh, I would like to remind people that when we meet again next year, uh, next week, we will be meeting at 9 p.m. Eastern as opposed to 8 p.m. Eastern, so one hour later than whatever you're used to where you are. Uh, our final class of the year at Drisha will be 10 a.m. on Sunday, a continuation of Rabbi David Silver's class on Tanakh. Um, but this class, when we meet again, will be the first class of next year. So I feel like that's special, and I, I hope to see everyone there. And I'd like to wish everyone a Shana Tova and be well. <laughs>